0: Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank.
1: The way you live your life, your concept of the world is called your worldview. We've talked about it many times on this program before. The question is, what determines your worldview? Whom do you follow that determines your worldview? Now, most will say it's their upbringing or their education, maybe their life situations, which have developed the worldview. Generally, those we most admire become our role models, and they have a great influence in our lives and our philosophies of the world. And that could be parents or pastors or sports figures or Hollywood or political people or anything like that. Today, we're going to look at two different philosophies, which will be prevalent in the end times and actually are prevalent today. The question is, which philosophy do you follow? I'm Debbie Blank, presenting you these two different life choices that are prevalent now and will become more so in the tribulation period based on what we study in Revelation 11.
0: And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Not many decades ago, it was safe to assume that the majority of Americans held a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. I'm sure you won't be shocked to learn that that's no longer true, but you might be truly shocked to learn that only 6% of Americans, including churchgoers, actually hold a biblical worldview today. Revelation chapter 11 continues with the introduction of God's two chosen witnesses and their supernatural presentation of the gospel which should prompt us to make sure of the accuracy of our own biblical worldview.
1: Jackie, you mentioned those statistics on worldview. Six percent of adult Americans have a biblical worldview, and those are just real simple questions, just six questions. They're not tough. They're not doctrinal issues. Most of them, they're simple. But what's even sadder is only two to three percent of kids under 18 have a biblical worldview. Where does that tell us our country is going? I guess we don't need to ask that question. We just need to look around us. God's being taken out of everything. And during COVID, even churches were required to shut down. Obviously, the country shut down for a few months. But after that, they were required to shut down. There's a lot of persecution that's going to take place in the church. The reason being that we're turning away from God. But there's always hope. As long as we have faith in Jesus Christ and as long as we're alive, there's always hope. What I love about this passage that we're going to study here is that God never tires of sharing the good news of the salvation in Jesus Christ, even to those who have never taken an interest or didn't want to hear about it before. Here we are in Revelation 11, in the middle of the tribulation. We're just about ready to hit that seventh trumpet, which is the middle of the tribulation. And God is still trying to share the truth. Because of his compassion and his love, he's reaching out to sinners. Even at this point, he's not given up. I love that because it tells me what a wonderful God we have and how caring he is and how he's never willing to turn his back on us. Chapter 14 of Revelation, we'll see it. He continues to share the gospel.
0: And I think that's something that really surprised me when I studied Revelation that brought that out and showed how many times in Revelation God reaches out with the Gospel. I think that the next time you wanna read or study scripture, and we're pointing it out today in, in Revelation, how God always has his arms out. It's the people who refuse him. So we're talking about two very special witnesses that God chooses to do this outreach and it's very special it's very supernatural tell us a little bit about the witnesses and do we need to know who they are
1: (laughs) well do we or can we and that's the question but that's not the important question just as a point of review last week we talked about verses one and two which discuss the importance of the temple in the future tribulation period, and also how Jerusalem was going to be trampled down by the Gentiles for 42 months, which is three and a half years, which is the last part of the tribulation period. Well, now we're given an insight into these two witnesses. It begins in Revelation 11, three, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, closed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So let's stop right there. Where are they going to get their authority? They're going to get their authority from God. Now that's significant because as we come to Revelation 13, just a couple of chapters away, it says that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to get their authority from Satan. So we have these two different worldviews. People who follow God and get their authority from God and people who follow Satan and get their authority from Satan. We will say, well, we don't follow Satan and we don't follow people who follow Satan. Well, the fact of the matter is, if we are not following Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are by default following Satan because we're either in God's kingdom by believing in Jesus Christ or we're not. And it's not that we're worshiping someone else, at least we don't think we are. But you can't have both ways. You can't just be a good person and get to heaven. You must follow Jesus Christ. So that's why these witnesses, it says, they will prophesy for 1260 days. What does this prophesying mean? Well, in the Greek, it's prophetio, which means to foretell the truth. Now, are they telling what's going to happen in the future, in the next several years? Maybe but they are definitely speaking the truth. You'll remember back in Revelation seven, we were introduced to 144,000 Jews who were sealed by God, ultimately for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Jews. Now we have two witnesses who are gonna be prophesying, telling the truth to the whole world for 1260
0: days. It is interesting that we get an exact length of days that they're going to be prophesying to the world. And it matches up with half the tribulation. That's the first thing that we're told about them. And then the next thing is what they're wearing. It says they are clothed in sackcloth. What is sackcloth and why would they be clothed like that? Why would God want us to know that?
1: Sackcloth is a form of mourning. Whenever you see people in the Old Testament who are distressed, they will tear their robes, they will walk around in sackcloth and ashes. That's what we see here with the idea of sackcloth is mourning. In James chapter four, verse nine, it says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Because when we have a heart for Jesus Christ, when we have a desire to know him and walk with him, sin makes us sick. I mean, we mourn as we see the sin that goes on. I mourn as I watch what our country's doing, as I watch the debauchery and the sin that goes against the word of God and how much it must grieve God. It offends me, but God's the one that made the rules and he's the one who's pure and holy and perfect. So it offends him so much more. These people are seeing that kind of sin and they are mourning over what's happening. And they are clearly trying to share that, trying to get people to turn their hearts around to Jesus Christ. So mournful over the sin that's going on. And how do we know that? It actually tells us a little bit more to help us understand that in verse four. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I tells you, they have a special relationship with God when they stand before the Lord of the earth. But what does it mean by two olive trees and two lampstands? You can understand that by looking in the book of Zechariah. That prophet has a very similar explanation of what these olive trees are and the lampstands are. It tells us in Zechariah 4, 1, Then the angel of the Lord who was speaking with me returned as a man who was aroused from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, behold, a lampstand, all of it gold with its bowls on top of it, seven lamps on which there are seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the left. And then it goes on in verse six to say a very important verse, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit declares the Lord. And what he's showing here is an example of his Two leaders. At that time, it was Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua was the priest, and Zerubbabel was the king. Those were the two olive trees standing next to the menorah, the lampstand, signifying, of course, the light, which is the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 14 of Zechariah 4, it says, And he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That's exactly what this wording is. In Zechariah, they're called anointed ones. That gives us more insight into these two witnesses, how they are anointed by God to prophesy.
0: So that brings us to the traditional question of who do you think these people are? And there are a lot of candidates. God is identifying them, but to what extent is it important for us to know who they are? Well,
1: it's not important for us to know who they are. We can get an idea, as you say, from reading the next couple of verses. In verse 5, it says, And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone who desires to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. If you know anything about Elijah, in First Kings chapter 18, he went up to Mount Carmel. He built an altar there for the Lord. He also had 450 Baal prophets build an altar to Baal. And he said, we'll see who's, who's the king, who's the God. When Elijah had built these altars, he says in 1 Kings 18:21, he came near to the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. He was enacting before the people two options. You choose God or you choose the Baal prophets. So he told the Baal prophets, have fire. Come down and consume your altar if in fact your God is God. And they spent all day into the evening cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things. And they were not able to bring fire down from heaven. So when they quit, Elijah prayed. And he poured water all over his altar so there could be no question about it. He prayed and God consumed the altar with fire. Elijah then went and killed all of the Baal prophets. So there's a lot of people that say this is Elijah because Elijah called down fire from heaven. Another reason for saying it's Elijah is because when you think of the law and the prophets, the law is Moses, the prophet is Elijah. So people will say it's Moses and Elijah. Another reason they will say it's Elijah is because in Hebrews nine twenty-seven, it's appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment. Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. So many people will say, for all those reasons, one of these guys is Elijah.
0: Well, also, doesn't Elijah appear with Moses at the transfiguration?
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. In Matthew seventeen three, we see those two at the transfiguration. So people assume that this is Moses along with Elijah. And part of the reason is you look at verse six. In verse six, it says, these two have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And by the way, Elijah did that in 1 Kings 17 when he shut up the sky. Then it goes on to say, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. We know that was the first plague miracle that Moses performed. And then it goes on and says, to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Moses is the one that God used to bring plagues about. That's why most people say this is Moses and Elijah. Some people say Enoch. Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah are the only two in the scriptures that never died. Enoch was taken up. And Moses was taken away by God and buried by God, which tells us he died. It doesn't really matter who they are. The important thing is we have seen so far that they were given authority by God to prophesy. And then we see that God supernaturally Protected them because whenever people came up against them, it tells us in verse five that they would harm them, that they would kill them. Then we see in verse six that God gave them power over nature in all of these miracles that they performed to keep people away from harming them, but also to draw people to Jesus Christ. By the way, a witness is a martyr. That's uh, martyria, is the Greek word, but it means just that they're witnessing. They're telling people about God, and oftentimes they're martyred because of it. Now, as we look at verse 7, we see that very thing is going to happen. It says, When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So first they prophesied, then they had protection, then they had power over nature, now they have persecution. When they had finished their testimony, that witnessing, they were martyred. And it tells us the beast that comes up out of the abyss. Who is that? This is the first time we've seen the beast mentioned in Revelation. He's mentioned significantly in chapter 13 that we'll talk about in a few weeks. In scripture, there's several names for hell, and one of them is the abyss. abusos in Greek, also known as the bottomless pit. That's one of two main places where the demons dwell. The other one is Tartarus, where the demons dwell. So these are demons, but this one particular one is the beast, that comes up, and he is known as the Antichrist when we get to Revelation 13, and specifically in Revelation 17, 8, it says that this man comes up out of the abyss. So we know that this is Satan, and he wages war with them. Why? Because he hates the Jews. Satan hates the Jews and wants to destroy them. Remember at the birth of Christ, when Herod tried to kill all the children two years and younger in order to get rid of the Christ child that was born. That was Satan's way of trying to kill Christ so the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled. Well, now you have the Antichrist empowered by Satan, who's going to make war with the two witnesses, but also the Jews in order to try and annihilate them so that future prophecies can't be fulfilled of God reigning with his Jewish people on the earth.
0: So they are killed by the beast. And the way they are treated in the city of Jerusalem is quite shocking. So we're reading verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who lived on the earth.
1: This is really quite a response to what's going to happen, but we shouldn't be surprised. It tells us that the beast in chapter 13, when we get there, is going to overpower people. People are going to worship him. So this is the very beginning, and maybe this is what causes them to worship him because he has the power and he destroys these two people. In Daniel chapter seven, it tells us in verse eight about the antichrist. It says, while I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a little one came up among them and three of the horns were pulled out by the roots before it. That's not what we're gonna talk about right now, but what I wanna read is the next portion, which says, Behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And it goes on to say in verse 21, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed. So, this is the Antichrist who is going to wage war. And he's going to start with these two witnesses. He's probably already been waging war against Israel, but we're going to see that in chapter 12 more significantly. How at this point, the Antichrist completely turns against the Jewish people. And it starts with these two witnesses. He kills them, he's now the people's hero because he's killed these people who've been proselytizing and they don't like it because you know what? Who wants to have their sin exposed? Who wants to be criticized for the way they're living? None of us do. That's why people today don't like to hear the gospel. They don't like to hear the messages from the Bible because when they do, they're going to see their sin and that sin to them is okay, or at least they want it to be. What happens when we don't go to church or we don't pay attention to the Bible? We just don't hear the message. But if somebody was coming every day and pounding in our heads, Bible thumping us, telling how evil it was, and we didn't want to hear it, we'd be really glad when they were gone. And that's how the people responded, as you said, in verse eight. This says their dead bodies lied in the street of the great city. And what's this great city? It says it's mystically called Sodom and Egypt. That means spiritually they call it Sodom. Sodom represents sin, grave sin. So obviously there's grave sin that's going on in the city of Jerusalem because that is the great city. And then it says Egypt. Egypt represents oppression, Jewish oppression, where the Jews were made slaves. That tells us at this time, right before the middle of the tribulation, there's going to be unparalleled sin and oppression. We don't know where the two witnesses are going to be witnessing. We don't know exactly where their dead bodies are going to be laid beside the fact that it'll be in Jerusalem. But I can't help but think it's going to be right there at the Wailing Wall, the holiest site of the Jews. They're going to be proselytizing mainly to the Jews, but also to the Muslims who go up into these, on the Temple Mount. I could see it happening there. Today, you can turn on an app on your computer, and you can see the Wailing Wall, that whole plaza 24-7. So the whole world will be able to see this. It goes on in verse 8 to identify Jerusalem by saying, where also their Lord was crucified. Spiritually, John is using the term Sodom, Egypt, to describe what's happening in the city, but clearly it's the city of Jerusalem. And then you mention verse 9. It says, those of the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look on their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Well, that's a pretty normal situation in old time war where you would lay bodies out so that people would see them. They'd fear the people who killed them, knowing that if the people did what these two witnesses were doing, they'd be killed also in the same manner. So it's kind of a testimony to say, we killed them and don't you dare do what they're doing because the same fate awaits you if you do. Notice that it says that all the people Basically, everyone in the world is going to look on their dead bodies. That was never possible until we had satellite TV and the ability to watch things that happen all around the world. Now we have 24-7 news in every city in the world, at least a modern city. People are going to be looking from everywhere to watch these people and what they've done to them. And their dead bodies laying in the streets.
0: So disrespectful. They, They treat them like animal carcasses versus human beings. Exactly right.
1: That also tells us as we look at this, that we're right there. We're in the generation because this was never possible before for everyone to see them. But how disrespectful. And so in verse 10, it's not surprising. They rejoice over them. They make merry. They send gifts because these two prophets tormented or tortured them is really what it means. Those who dwell on the earth. And remember, back over in the previous verses, it said that they had the power to kill people if the people tried to approach them. So you have them prophesying, you have them protected supernaturally, they had power over nature, these two witnesses were persecuted, and now you have the people's response. Now, I don't usually get something that has all these Ps in it, but I just thought it was great as I was looking at this because it helps me remember this whole story better. And the final situation we see in verses 11 and 12 deal with power over death. It says, and after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. Why three and a half days? Because the Jews believe that the spirit of man left its body by the third day. You can't question that somebody was really dead if it's been three and a half days. But we have three and a half days. It says the breath of life, the spirit of God really came into them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. Can you imagine? Now and
0: Everybody's watching. Like you said, this is being televised. These bodies are very dead laying out in the street like that they were thinking that they finally had power over these people who were trying to preach to them trying to get their attention even using supernatural things that would maybe turn some people to repentance but obviously so many of these people were not repentant at all so they think they have this victory and suddenly these people come back to life
1: And it says, they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into the heavens in the cloud and their enemies beheld them. How did people respond in verse 13? A lot different than they had responded before. Verse 13 says, and in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Just a little while before, they were celebrating that the two witnesses are dead. Now they're giving glory to God. You see, it takes adversity in our lives oftentimes to get us to turn around and see who God really is. And at this point, those people who were jeering at God's people after they'd had the troubles, they're giving glory to
0: God. What struck me about verse 13, and this is the earthquake and the a tenth of the city falling, and 7,000 people killed in the earthquake. Then the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God in heaven. And I thought to myself, look at what God went through. He did everything that it could possibly take to get these people to the point where they finally recognized and understood and gave glory to God. Everything that's happened here with the two witnesses, again, evidence to me that God will do whatever it takes to bring somebody who might be willing to come to him.
1: That's such a great observation, Jackie, because we're just living in this world and we act or react the way that we feel, whatever our worldview is. And their worldview was simply, we don't like these guys because they're convicting us of our sins and we like to do what we like to do until the pain came. And there's nothing that will get our attention faster than troubles and persecution and pain. And God knows that. He's not punishing them, I don't believe, as much as he is trying to get their attention, give them one last chance to change their hearts. And boy, this would do it. In the book of Revelation, there's five earthquakes, and they are, this one's called a great earthquake. So it's even worse than the rest of them. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is full of hills and mountains, and I can just see all of them crumbling. And when they do, they would roll their rocks down onto the cities and the streets and the houses and kill people very easily. And you could also have with earthquakes, the earth opening up and people just being swallowed up in them. And it says the rest that were left were terrified. That means extremely afraid in the Greek, obviously. And they gave honor to the Lord, to the Theos, the God of heaven. All of this is happening before the third woe. The third woe is the middle of the tribulation, the seventh trumpet that we'll discuss next week. Since they've been prophesying for 1260 days, it's the first half of the tribulation period. And now they're destroyed because now Satan is just about ready to take his seat on the throne of God in the form of the Antichrist. That's why in Revelation eleven fourteen it says the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That second woe is the sixth trumpet that started out with a 200 million man army that saw a third of the people on the earth killed, and now it's ending at the middle of the tribulation with the death of God's witnesses. The activity is changing. The focus which we've had in our lives on God is now changing to a satanic focus more and more. So we have two different kinds of people that we're seeing here, and that is the witnesses and the beast and the people who follow him when the two witnesses of God prophesied people turned against them until the earth was shaken and their lives were in danger. And then they gave glory to God. But the people who were following the beast, they turned away from God, but they had two choices for their worldview. Are they going to follow God's witnesses that he gave authority to? Or are they going to follow Satan's witness, the beast, that Satan gives authority to. People have that choice in the future, but we also have it now. Who is the one who leads us and guides us? Who do we obey? And remember, if we're not following God, we are automatically following the evil one because we have to make a decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives. It doesn't come naturally. If we don't do that, then the other side comes naturally. Today is the day to decide. Jesus would come at any moment. All prophecies have been fulfilled for him to return any time for the rapture of the church. Are you ready? Are you going to go up into the rapture to meet Jesus in the air? Or are you going to be here to suffer all these things that we're talking about?